Thank you. It is a joy to be with you this morning. I do bring greetings to you from Intercity Baptist Church and from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been very thankful for your ministry here. I know under Pastor Chris, our church has benefited from the, the hymns as well as Pastor Joe and the, the gospel meditation booklets. And so this is my first time to be with you, but I've already been blessed by the ministry of your church. And so thank you for that, and I'm glad to be here. As Pastor Joe mentioned, I've been thinking a little bit more about issues of churches' relationship to government and thinking through issues of persecution. And one of the, the driving factors that made me think through this is what happened during COVID. And I, I've titled this Suffering, or Preparing to Suffer as a Christian in a Post-COVID and Post-Christian World. I say post-COVID because I think many of us were surprised at some of the things that happened uh, during COVID in some ways that, that Christians and churches struggled with us. I say post-Christian because I think our, our culture at large is no longer favorable towards historic Orthodox Christianity. And now I, I don't know that we were ever fully on board with historic Orthodox Christianity, but I think there was a, a more favorableness in general uh, towards Christianity. I think we probably went through a time in which it was somewhat neutral uh, towards Christianity, but now I think it's increasingly hostile. And because it is increasingly hostile, I think we're going to have to increasingly wrestle with what we should do as believers in response to what government's doing, in response to what our culture's doing. And I hope that this morning we can be thinking through what that looks like. And one of the things that sparked this uh, was back in, in February of 2021. That's a picture of James Coates. He is a pastor of, of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta. Some of you may have seen news items about this. In February 2021, he was arrested and put in jail because his church was continuing to gather as a whole and in person, which violated the regulations in Alberta at that time. And this was interesting to me on, on several levels. I actually had an opportunity to serve at a sister church in Edmonton uh, for a time as an internship. My wife went to the University of Alberta for her master's, and so I was familiar with the city, familiar with other churches there in the area. And I was surprised, if I can say it this way, at how some Christians immediately wanted to jump and say, I'm sad that James Coates is in prison, but let's not call this religious persecution. And they did so, I think, often using one of three arguments. And I began to wrestle with whether these arguments were legitimate arguments. How should we think about what religious persecution is and what it isn't? And so I want to think through some of the arguments that people were putting forward. And I want to do so by considering three other potential scenarios. Some of them, I think, already occurring. Others, I think, will very likely occur in the near future. The first would be a Christian baker who believes it would be wrong to bake a cake for a gay wedding. And some of you may have familiarity with that kind of a scenario. There's actually a baker out in Colorado who, for years now, has been facing litigation over this kind of an issue. A Christian operator of a women's homeless shelter who refused to admit a biological male who identifies as a woman. Or a Christian counselor who does not want to advocate for transition-affirming therapies, but instead wants to help someone accept the body that God gave to him or to her. And so the arguments that are being used, I want to consider, would they potentially also apply to these things? And if so, is it right then to say that they would not be religious persecution? Or is it actually wrong to say it's not religious persecution? First argument. 
is this. It's not religious persecution because the government's not specifically targeting religions or religious people. This is one of the ones that I think came up most often, and we see this pretty regularly. And if I can say it bluntly, I think one of the reasons it comes up a lot is this is a test case for American legal questions as to whether or not it would constitute a violation of First Amendment rights. One of the test cases in in legal theory is, is this broadly applied or does this wrongly target religious groups? But I'm not sure that's actually a, there's a biblical basis for that argument. I don't think there's a biblical reason to say, well, as long as it's not targeting Christians or not targeting religious groups, it's okay. So let's think about this in light of things we mentioned earlier, the Christian baker. What if it was a Muslim baker or, or a Jewish baker or, or just a, a, a person who had no real religious affiliation but, but said, you know, I, I just don't think that gay marriage is actually marriage and so I don't want to promote that. I think it's detrimental to understanding what marriage is. You say, well, the government would still be persecuting that person. The government would still be potentially fining them and enforcing their business. So it's not really religious persecution then, right, with the argument. Or let's say the, 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 woman's, uh, the operator of the women's homeless shelter. Well, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian homeless shelter or not. The reality is the government could be saying any shelter for women must accept someone who identifies as a woman. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's just we're doing this across the board. Or it doesn't matter that you're a Christian counselor. Any counselor <coughs> who's involved with helping children has to uh, affirm those who want to transition. And I think in all those scenarios, we'd say it doesn't really matter that it broadly applies. What matters is this is someone who's a Christian standing up for Christian beliefs and is facing opposition in light of that. Whether it's targeting Christians or not isn't really a factor. A second argument is being used. It's not really religious persecution because the pastor could have found other ways to conform to the government restrictions. This is very commonly used. They could have said, hey, they could have had four services instead of one. Uh, they could have had shifts. They could have just met online. Why were they making a big deal about gathering together in worship? And again, I think a similar argument could have been used against other scenarios. Well, the Christian baker could have decided not to design any wedding cakes and just change their business. They said, I don't do wedding cakes anymore, and so therefore it's not an issue. Or the women's homeless shelter could have been a generic homeless shelter, so it wasn't designed for women anymore, and they wouldn't have faced this opposition. Or the Christian counselor perhaps could have said, I'm not going to counsel any children, or uh, I'm just going to pass them off to someone else to have them affirm it, and it doesn't matter you know, whether or not you believe. And, and so there could have been ways to get around it, but I'm not sure that's really the standard we want to use either. The fact that maybe you could finagle things and find some way to move around it, I don't think needs to be the question of whether or not you should stand on principle. A third argument, and this was maybe the most common one I saw. It's not religious persecution because they're wrong to come to the conclusion they have. In other words, this is not Christian behavior. So it can't be Christian persecution. And I'll give a couple of Uh, comments towards that end. But but first, I I do want to to note that there's some validity to this question or to wrestling with this issue. Could a Christian be facing affliction or hardship and it not be suffering as a Christian? 
And the answer from the Bible is, well, well, yes, actually, Peter talks about that. I know you've been working through 1 Peter. And Peter mentions this a couple of different times. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So if you break the law and you're thrown in jail, you can't say, ha, Christian persecution. You've got to figure out, am I actually doing something wrong here or not? Or later on, 1 Peter 4. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. So you might be a Christian who suffers, but you're not suffering as a Christian. You might be suffering because you actually made a wrong mistake. So, so you might potentially be doing something wrong and therefore suffering. So, so here's some comments I saw uh, talking about Pastor Coates. The man is in clear defiance of legitimate governmental authority and now has criminal charges against him. He could be free today if he would cooperate, but he piously claims conscience and sits in jail. I'm quite fine with that. Perhaps the Lord will teach him a lesson. Now, that was a, another Canadian pastor. Here's one from uh, someone who is a, a Christian leader. This guy's no kind of hero of the faith. The restrictions in question could have been followed without disobedience to, to Scripture. Is there anything Christian about bringing persecution on ourselves by defiant conduct? So how does this argument apply to other, the other examples we gave? I, I've seen people argue if you're a Christian baker or a Christian florist or a Christian photographer and you do weddings, you're offering a public service. And so you don't get to decide whether or not you agree with the people you're serving. You just have to serve them. And so if a gay person comes in and wants a, a cake for their wedding, you give it to them. Otherwise, you don't be a, a baker. And so many Christians would say, hey, he, just, he should do it. Others might say, if you're the operator of a, a Christian a women's homeless shelter, well, hey, there's an opportunity for you to share the gospel with this person who, who thinks that uh, he's a woman, and so why not let them in? I would do it if I were operating it. Or, or perhaps you're the Christian counselor, and you say, I mean, if that's what they want to do, if they want to transition, who are you to tell them not to? Why wouldn't you just help them in what they're wanting to pursue? Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying they're right in any of those arguments. I just want to wrestle with the, the question of does someone have to be taking a stand that every Christian needs to take or necessarily taking a stand that is the right Christian stand in order for it to be Christian persecution? I think to answer that, we need to consider a passage in Romans 14. In Romans 14, we have Paul writing to the, the church there in Rome, and he's talking about people who have different understandings, I think, largely of issues related to the Mosaic law. And I don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of this. I'll just state what I believe, and you can look into this later, have to talk about this later. I don't think Paul's actually talking about things that the Bible doesn't talk about. In fact, everything in this passage the Bible does talk about, because it talks about food and drink, and it talks about days. And the New Testament says all foods are clean. And the New Testament says... Um, don't let anyone judge you, in Colossians 2, on the basis of a, a holy day or a Sabbath. And so actually, Scripture would say, you don't have to recognize holy days, and you can eat pork or anything you want, because food is, is clean. 
But I think there were largely Jews who their whole life had been told, God doesn't want you to do this, or God wants you to recognize these days. And so they still felt like they needed to do that. And so they felt like they couldn't eat meat, perhaps because they couldn't guarantee that it was prepared properly, or they needed to recognize certain holy days. And Paul doesn't say, hey, you guys are wrong. Change, change your actions and change your beliefs. He actually says, if you think it's wrong, it actually would be sinful for you to do this. That's what he says. Look, look there in Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another. These are days. While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So, so be convinced. This is what God wants me to do. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul says, I, you know what? You can eat meat. God is perfectly happy with you eating meat. But if you think it's unclean, then it actually is unclean for you. Later on, verse 22, the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, now just to make sure we're understanding this, really what Paul's saying is, if you think God doesn't want me to do it, should you do it? And the answer is, no. Let's say you tell your son or daughter, I don't want you leaving this room for the next 15 minutes. They hear 50 minutes. And they think you said 50 minutes. And 30 minutes later, they say, you know what, I don't care what mom and dad says, I'm leaving this room. Did they disobey you? And one answer is like, well, no, I didn't tell them 50, I said 15. Do they think they're disobeying you? Yeah. So in that sense, are they actually disobeying you? Yes. Because they're doing something they think you don't want them to do. And that's what Paul's saying here. If you think it's a sin, you can't do it. So, let's say you have someone who's convinced eating meat is sinful. And Rome comes out and says, every citizen of Rome is going to gather together and eat this meat on this festival day. And if you don't, you're going to be thrown into prison. And so the Christians there who think, I can't do this. I'd be sinning against God to eat this meat. They don't eat this meat. They get thrown into prison. What would Paul say? Great. Because it would have been sinful for you to eat that meat. Now, does that mean every Christian then should have abstained from eating meat? No, because Paul says it's actually okay to eat. But what would have been bad is for the Christians who said it's okay to eat, to look at those other Christians and say, well, look, you brought this on yourself, buddy. You didn't have to avoid meat. What they should have said is, I'm so thankful that you wanted to honor God so much that you were willing to be thrown into prison rather than disobey God. So, was James Coates right? I'm not going to try to answer that right now. I'm going to simply say, I'm so thankful that he thought it was so important for him to obey God that he was willing to be thrown into prison for that. Because that's really what we need to think through. The question isn't, is it just targeting Christians? Or could they have found another way? Or does every Christian have to agree? I think really what it comes down to is this. Is the person facing this hardship 
because they're acting in a way they are convinced they must act in order to properly honor Christ. Now, brief clarification. We could do a lot of caveats. This isn't simply saying, hey, whatever you want to do. Because Romans 14 also isn't talking about things God says are wrong. If God says it's wrong, you don't have the right to say, well, I think it's okay. And Romans 14 isn't dealing with those things. It's actually dealing with things that God says is okay, but not commanded. And so in those scenarios, we might come to different conclusions. And potentially might even face persecution in light of that. And we shouldn't look at that and say, well, look, it's not really religious persecution unless you agree with me. We've got to say, you've got to be convinced in your own mind. You've got to study the scriptures. But if you believe you cannot do this in good conscience, then you can't do it. And if you believe in order to honor God, I must do this, then you need to do it. As best as you know from scripture. Not just saying, this is what I want to do or what I don't want to do. But I want to honor God in this. And therefore, I am willing to face persecution in order to do that. And I think we as Christians then should be in support of that. Whether or not we agree that we would have to take the same position, we should be thankful that there are Christians willing to take those kinds of stands. I think another part of the confusion in all of this is because when we think of persecution, we tend to think of things like James Coates being thrown into prison. Which is why I was talking to another pastor friend of mine who was talking about wrestling in their church about this because people were saying, look, this is like real persecution. Like we, we read about this in other places, but now it's happening in our country. And, and one of the things I, I told my pastor friend is, well, part of the problem is we have a wrong understanding of what persecution is. Because what does Paul say in t- 2 Timothy 3? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution didn't come to Canada in February of 2021. Persecution had already been in Canada. It's not as though persecution doesn't exist in the United States because no pastors have been thrown into prison. Persecution already exists. Now, granted, there might be a difference between what we call governmental persecution or or official persecution. But persecution biblically is much broader than just being killed or thrown into prison. And let's look at a few passages that talk about this. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So persecution might look like being reviled. It might look like having people say things falsely about you, speaking evil about you in a false way. Hebrews 10, 23-24 But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What did it look like? Well, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you were partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so sometimes it was approach. Sometimes it was actually people taking your properties. And it's hard to know for certain, but, but perhaps what would happen is these believers went and, and visited other believers in prison, and while they were gone, people came in and, and destroyed things in their house or took things from their house. And their property was, was plundered as they identified with other believers. And so it might look like approach. It might look like something harsher. Later on in Hebrews 11, talking about in the past how people suffered for Jesus. 
Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because he considered the reproach of Christ. And again, we see it could be reproach, not just beatings, but but perhaps looking down on and scoffings. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Or later in that chapter, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You've been working through 1 Peter together, and 1 Peter talks about this several different times. 1 Peter 2, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and so it often is, is verbal. Similarly, in 1 Peter 3, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Or First Peter 4, as we read this morning. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Or later on in that chapter, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And so often persecution doesn't take the, the stage of being beaten or thrown into prison. It might take the stage of being mocked of being lied about, maybe of of losing some property in some way, like fines or maybe losing a job. And so there are various ways that persecution might manifest itself. And so we shouldn't just limit persecution to the the greater ends, the the more, more extreme versions of it. Now, I think many people will want to do that because they want to recognize being thrown into prison isn't the same thing as having someone kind of mock you. And that's true. But in both situations, you have the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. You have the privilege of of doing something in Christ's name, of seeking to honor him and facing affliction, facing opposition in response to what you have done. Now, I want to to consider a third issue this morning. We talked about what constitutes religious persecution and, and different ways that Scripture talks about it. And I think one of the reasons why many people were, were concerned with the stand that someone like James Coates was taking or, or other pastors who were, were standing up publicly is they were concerned with what the general culture would think. And you often heard questions about the evangelical witness or sometimes the public witness. Well, well what are other people going to think about what we're doing here? And and very often, the the concern is is basically couched in saying, we need a good evangelical witness in order for the gospel to to be spread in our country and in our community. And if people are doing things that harm the evangelical witness, they're going to harm the spread of the gospel. And so we need to be very concerned about the evangelical witness. And I, this morning, would like to argue we should not be very concerned about the evangelical witness. And I want to give a few reasons why that's the case. The first is that this issue is largely outside of your control. And that's in part because the term evangelical or the idea of evangelical is very broad. And I think much broader than actually biblical Christianity. 
And I just want to give one example. This is actually from a survey done by the Barna Research Group in 2016. Estimates vary. Usually it's around one-third of people are considered born-again or evangelical Christians. And in this one, it was 35% were considered born-again Christians. But if you asked, have you read the Bible in the last week, and do you believe the Bible is accurate in everything it teaches, that automatically jumps down to 23%. And so we've already gone from a third to a quarter of Americans. But then if you add additional criteria, you jump down to 7%. Only 7% of people would say they're born again, read the Bible in the last week, and believe it's accurate in all it teaches, and believe these things. Your faith is an important part of your life today. You have a personal responsibility to share your religious faith with non-Christians. You believe Satan exists. You believe Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. You believe eternal salvation is possible only through grace and not works. And God is an all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. Now, I don't know about you. When I read that, I think that's biblical Christianity. And so we've now gone from 35% of people are evangelicals to maybe 7% of people are actually Christians. So the vast majority of people who are evangelicals aren't even Christians. And so what power do we have to actually form the evangelical witness when we're a minority of that group? A second reason, a second issue that we face is that whole idea of an evangelical witness is really kind of vague. We have to ask the question, well, well, who is the witness to or, or what's the witness about? Because depending upon the audience, the positions that are being discussed might be very different. So let me just give one example. Would it be helpful or harmful for the evangelical witness for Christians to take a stand against biological men competing in women's sports? And the answer is, well, probably for about half of America, they would look at that negatively. And for about half of America, they would look at that positively. And so for one group, it would help the evangelical witness. And for the other group, it would harm the evangelical witness. And, and the question then really shouldn't be about the evangelical witness. The question is, should we do it or not? What's right? Is this the proper stand to take? Not necessarily, will it help or harm us? Because it's going to vary, because we live in a country that's very broad and very polarized. And so it's going to be very mixed as we think about these things. A third reason I'd argue we shouldn't be that concerned about the evangelical witness is that the world will never view Christians favorably. Think about what Jesus says in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? Yes. And if they did, then they will persecute his followers. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We looked at this already. Matthew 5 points out that they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They're not going to speak the truth about you as a believer. They're going to speak false things about you. 
They're going to charge you with evil that is not true. Let me just give one example from early Christianity. Her early Christians were often accused of, of incestual relationships and cannibalism. Why? Well, they call each other brother and sister, and yet they're marrying each other. And, and this morning, what are we going to, to do at the end of this service? We're going to eat the Lord's flesh and drink his blood. And, and what are they doing? The Lord's Supper. And so Christians were accused of, of cannibalism and incest. Was it true? Not, not at all. So the Christians say, oh man, people are getting a wrong impression of us. We better stop this. They didn't do that. Because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible told them that. And they were supposed to eat the Lord's flesh and drink his blood. Because Jesus said, this cup is the covenant of my blood. This is my body. And so they were called to do these things. And even if you as a Christian never did anything wrong, if you could perfectly love everyone else, if you could perfectly follow God's law, would then the world finally accept us? And the answer is, well, no, it wouldn't. Because who did that? Jesus. And they hated him. Not because of his sin, but because he wasn't sinning. Now, now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean we should just say, hey, it doesn't matter if we sin. We should still care whether or not we sin. Maybe not so much just because of the evangelical witness, but because we're sinning against our God. We should still want to, to live godly lives apart from sin. But even if we did that, we're not going to have a good evangelical witness with the world. The world will hate us. A fourth reason why we shouldn't be that concerned is that the evangelical witness, whatever that might be, matters much less than your personal reputation. And again, I said often this is raised over concerns about what about our gospel witness? All right, so who are the people you need to be most concerned about hearing the gospel? And the answer is the people God has providentially placed into your life, your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, the people you interact with on, on softball teams and in, in, in golfing clubs and, and different things like that. So let's say that our culture thinks evangelicals are great and you're a jerk to everyone. And you're like, well, I mean, you're a jerk, but evangelicals are good, so please tell me the gospel. It's not going to work that way, right? What if our culture thinks evangelicals are jerks? But you know, John's a, John's a really solid guy. You know, Sarah, she works hard at work. Tim loves his family. Are they going to be willing to listen to the gospel? Yeah. Because you know what matters a lot more than the evangelical witness? Your reputation. And more broadly, the reputation of your church. What do people think about Tri-County? Be concerned about that more than the evangelical witness. Be concerned with what you do in your community and how you act in your community. Because people don't just encounter evangelicals, they encounter you. That's what's going to make a difference. Fifth reason is that Christianity will at times be disruptive. Yes, we we should be known as those who strive to submit to to government authorities as servants of God. We talked a little bit about that this morning. And any time we believe we cannot submit to the government... We must do so in a way that still seeks to honor government officials. And one example of this, which I find fascinating, in Daniel 6, you have the king who throws Daniel into the lion's den. And in the morning, he comes to Daniel, 
I says, Daniel, are you okay? And what does Daniel say? Yeah, no thanks to you, buddy. No, he doesn't say that. And what does he say? O king, live forever. Now, he, he couldn't submit to the king's decree, but he could honor him as the king. And that's what we as Christians should always be striving to do. We wanted to treat people with disrespect. We want to honor them. We want to give them respect. That's what God calls us to do. But even when we do that, there's going to be times in which the very fact that we have a citizenship that is in heaven and not in this world means that we will not match up with the flow of life in this world. And what's interesting is you read through Acts, you see over and over again, the apostles are charged with sedition. They're charged with disrupting order. They're charged with doing things against the law. But let's consider some of these examples here. Acts, 14, or Acts 6. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. Acts 14.4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Acts 16. When they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Acts 17. When they could not find them, they dragged Drayson and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come down here also. Uh, What are they saying? You know what Christians are like? The people who turn the world upside down, and now they're here. That's the reputation they had. And Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city's authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Acts 18. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Acts 21, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul's getting beaten by everyone. What does he do? All right, it's got to be you, because you're, you're creating a disturbance. So we're arresting you. The guy was being beaten up by everyone. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob people followed, crying away with him. Later on in Acts, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. That's interesting, right? We're going to beat you until you tell us why everyone's mad at you. Acts 23. A great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Or Acts 24. For we found this man a plague, 
one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, some of these accusations aren't even true. And yet, Paul received these. Because I think sometimes the best testimony for the believer is not to avoid controversy at any cost, but instead to graciously and humbly, yet boldly and firmly, stand up for the truth and demonstrate that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. The final reason that I don't think we should be that concerned about the evangelical witness is that salvation is ultimately a miraculous work of God. It's not a persuasive work of people. The biblical picture of conversion is not of someone carefully weighing the options and being kind of pushed or prodded one way or the other as a view of generic Christianity. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it's like, you know what, I just think Christians are great people, and as I kind of look through it, I'm kind of finding I'm more on the side with the Christians. How is salvation described? It's a blind person having their eyes opened. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, and yet the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the gospel, the glory of God, and the face of Jesus Christ. It's of a dead person coming to life. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who's rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. And the reason this is the case is because by grace you have been saved. There's no good thing you can do to get right with God. It's not just a matter of, of convincing yourself or thinking a certain way or acting a certain way. Salvation happens when God graciously makes us alive. And he does this, it says, through faith. And that happens in connection with the proclamation of the gospel. The good news of what Jesus Christ did for us. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we deserve nothing from God except his anger and his judgment. And yet Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins. And we can benefit from that death. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have new life. We can be born again, not because of what we do or who we are, but when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And so it doesn't really matter what people think of Christianity. What matters is are we faithfully proclaiming the truth of the gospel so that God, through his spirit, can do this miraculous work in bringing people to salvation. So I think far too many of the people who are concerned about the evangelical witness are really concerned about Christians being viewed with respect by the broader culture. And they're afraid that Christians are going to be viewed as, as strange and as weird and as fringe and extremist. And so we'll lose our, our cultural standing. But you realize as Christians, we aren't concerned with winning the approval of a world that hates God. There's no value in that. Yes, we should be concerned about our personal testimony. And yes, we should be concerned about our faithful proclamation of the gospel. But we do not need to be concerned about some generic evangelical witness. The question isn't, what will people think about this? That might be a small factor. The real question is, what does God think about this? 
What does Jesus want me to do? And even if anyone else thinks that's strange, it doesn't matter. Because I'm not seeking the approval of men. I'm seeking the approval of God. I want to close with a challenge for us to be prepared to suffer. Hebrews 13 comes at the end of a message in which the author of Hebrews is writing to, I think, largely Jewish believers who are facing opposition. They're facing suffering. They're facing persecution. And some of them are tempted to to walk back from Jesus Christ. They're tempted maybe to go back into Judaism. And the author's encouraging them to hold fast. Because ultimately Christ is better than anything else. At the very end, he calls them to this challenge. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What's the Christian life like? Is the Christian life like a situation in which we're, we're largely and warmly embraced? Is the Christian life one in which we're on the in group? And the answer is no. The Christian life means being outside the camp. That's where the things that were unclean go, that's where waste was. That's where things that were not welcome in the city were. And and that's the way the Christian life is. The Christian life isn't one in which we should think we're going to be largely welcomed and embraced and respected in society. Because Jesus wasn't. He suffered outside the gate. And so we need to live that kind of life. We need to be willing to bear the reproach that he bore. And why would we do that? Well, I think there's at least three reasons in this passage. I think these are reasons why it will help us to be willing to face suffering, to be willing to bear the reproach that Christ bore. And the first is that we're just doing what Jesus did. He suffered outside the gate. And if there's anyone who should not have had to bear that kind of reproach, it's Jesus. I mean, he's the one who deserves worship and honor from everything. He's the one to whom every tongue should confess he's Lord. Every lip should be giving him praise. He's the one who should never have to bear hardship. He's the one who should never have to face reproach. And yet, what did he do? He came to earth and he suffered. He came to earth and he bore reproach. So why would we expect anything less? We're only following the steps of our Lord who suffered outside the camp. Secondly, so it says in verse 14, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that's to come. If you're like me, you might be concerned about what's happening in our country. You see some of the issues that we're facing. And I, I confess there are times in which I wonder, is America going to last? And on one level, I'm concerned about that because I live here. And my children live here. And I think God has used this country in many ways for the furtherance of the gospel. But what if America doesn't last? 
And in a sense, we're no different than many nations that have come before us. Because America is not our home. America is not the place of our ultimate allegiance. We are not first and foremost citizens of this country. We have a city that is to come. We have an eternal country. We are citizens of heaven. And that means we're never going to look like everyone else here. Because this is all they have. And it's fading. And it's passing away. And if you live and you are concerned and you are consumed with the issues of this world, you are living for things that are passing away. But you have a city that's to come. That's where our focus ultimately needs to be. That's where our concern ultimately needs to be. But finally, why would we go outside the gate to bear reproach? And the answer is, look, look what the author says again. Where are we going? Look again at verse 13. We're not just going outside the camp. Where are we going? To him. That's where Jesus is. So how could I stay where it's comfortable and easy? How could I stay in which I'm not going to face hardship? When my Savior is out there. So yes, we're going to have to be ready to bear reproach. Do you realize it might not be that far from now? in which Christians can't serve as, as medical professionals unless we're willing to, to buy into the orthodoxy about sexuality and gender. We may not be able to serve as lawyers. You realize there might come a day in which the fact that you give to a church like Tri-County means that you are donating to an organization that's deemed hateful and therefore your assets can be seized. Because we've seen governments do that kind of thing. And the question is, are you willing to bear that reproach? Are you willing to say, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if I lose everything. Because I say, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Father, I ask that you would give us wisdom to know the times and places in which we need to stand for you. Give us courage, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us grace in the midst of these stands to, to do so in a way that's honoring to you, that reflects your character. Lord, help us more than anything else to want to walk with you, to serve you, to do what honors you. And may that drive us to be willing to walk where you walked, to follow in the steps of our Savior, to bear the same kind of reproach. Because here we have no lasting city. We pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.